Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today in what is a cloudy and crisp autumn morning here in the capital is Keith Narona. Keith is the Managing Director at Reynolds Technology Limited, an SME manufacturer based in Birmingham, West Midlands. Uh, Keith, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme today. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Keith, and thank you ever so much again for your time taken to uh, to come and join us. It's uh, maybe a bit of a cool day for it, but it's good that we're, of course, uh, tucked up inside, so it's not really too much of a problem. Now, um, normally at this point in the uh, the show, we tend to dive straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation and how that's been such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life, I feel it's appropriate that we approach the subject matter from that angle. Um, for yourself as a manufacturer, to what extent has all of this affected you and your business? Well, for Reynolds Technology, let's say based in the UK and based in Birmingham, yes, it's had an effect, but in some ways we definitely feel we are better off than some. The reason I say, I will say, is looking back at, ironically, the company was founded in Birmingham back in 1898 and mm. been making bicycle parts since that time. So I was actually ironically looking at the history and thinking, Going back into the annals of history, like 1921, 26, general strike, two world wars, recessions, and the roller coaster ride. Ironically, for Reynolds, because cycling is popular right now, the initial stage, and when our fears were, you know, shut down, closed down, what's it going to do to the business? We are actually relatively busy now. But I'd mention that, you know, it's worth thinking back to as we saw what was unfolding back from about January, February, because Reynolds exports about 75% of what we make in the UK to different parts of the world, including China and Taiwan particularly. And I mentioned that because we saw the first signs of something going on over there back in uh, even a Chinese New Year. And we didn't think it would be serious particularly, but, you know, we'd seen SARS and H1N1 effects back then. So we thought it would be something similar to that. So we were starting to see something like that and thought, okay, I wonder how that will affect us. But we actually then got closer and closer to seeing what was happening in Europe and then obviously the broadcast from the 23rd of March when effectively we as Reynolds decided to close the business for four weeks because of what was happening there. Mm. And for a manufacturing company who have to deliver to com- uh, our customers around the world, obviously major impact. Uh, it was affecting our customers' ability to make bicycles around the world. Obviously for a company like us with a high level of fixed cost, even with furlough for some of the people, clearly an issue. But one of the initial decisions we made as a company, here, and say we're small, privately funded, we decided the production people are uh, basically on furlough because there's no physical work to do. Well, the customer-facing part of the business, the R&D, production planning, we took a decision to carry on working because 
There are some things that obviously could carry on doing, which we felt would be an investment in the business going forward. And, you know, half of me fear on, you know, how long is this going to last? Will we survive through what, what was very much an unknown situation? But the other side of it is, ironically, it gave us a chance to focus on some projects in terms of timing without distractions that allowed us to work from home and basically set up, you know, different team meetings and Zoom meetings and basically keep chatting to each other, but actually carry on working on that part of it. So for the first four weeks, particularly very, very stressful, very worrying because especially the cash flow impact of what was going on. But then we were able to use that time deliberately thinking there will be a future beyond this. What do we do? After the first four weeks, we then gradually started bringing some people back in to restart production. Again, trying to stay in touch with customers who themselves were shut down all around the world and trying to think, how is this order book going to look like going forward? And of course, no crystal ball. It's really piecemeal around the world depends on what each customer is going to, going to be doing as we try to really find out what would the next part of the world be doing in something like that. So gradually the order book started to recover and then practical situations we've never met before because obviously we have to have a COVID safe environment. So we had to create that and make sure it worked for the workforce. Uh, we then had uh, issues with some of our employees, key employees, particularly sheltering, not surprisingly, not because they were necessarily unhealthy themselves, but for example, if they had a partner, um, you know, they had to be more careful. So suddenly we have a situation where how do we manage to keep production going with key experienced people away? So again, gradually learning what we could do and what we couldn't do, and basically adapting in those circumstances. And then I say it's because indeed cycling has been popular where we as a company are very fortunate that Audible can be covered well. And that moved into a different kind of stress level because now we have companies around the world where they are dependent on our bicycle tubing, which is basically steel and titanium tubing. They need our products to continue their businesses and we were having to juggle the various demands from people around the world who needed parts from us. So it moved from being, oh, we've got no order book to actually we've got a pretty strong order book. Mm. How do we manage it? And for the people within the company, they had actually, they have responded extremely well and done well above what's expected in terms of adaptability, flexibility, and what they needed to do. So we've been able to do that. But indeed, it's created a stressful environment, but in some ways it's also allowed people to react positively and find ways around it, which I think has given them more confidence. And how has it been sort of managing that stress from a mental health point of view, both for yourself and also those people that you work with? I will say that's definitely something that's very much on my mind right now because one side of it in the early days is actually just the ability to talk to each other. And one side of it, uh, we are we kind of joke within our little team here because what we see is, for example, for those who continue to work at home or have been working at home or, uh, you know, with the changes there, we do need actually a lot of people to be in the factory because of what goes on there. But there was quite a range depending on their personalities, I would say. Some people were adapting very well to working from home. Others actually very much missed the interaction between 
members of staff. And it's interesting how different people reacted to that. And the other side of it is also for for the entire workforce, I would say, with obviously the concern about COVID, uh, the community, their own uh, close relations and who they could meet. They also felt present what they would be doing and that they would have a safe environment to work in. And it's actually managing all of that and keeping people motivated, but also reacting and being able to be aware of the different things. Obviously, with the second wave coming now, obviously further concern because who knows, you know, if we move into a different tier or something else happens or one of our staff uh, has COVID, how would we handle it there? But definitely the potential mental stress on individuals is something we have to watch very carefully because it is interesting how uh, the different mode of working now compared to prior to COVID, how that's affected certain people's ability to handle uh, a stressful situation. As I said, it's because we have a full order book, it's particularly important that we are able to spot and make sure we support all members of staff and something like that. And thinking about that transition now, particularly with regards to the new way of remote working, just how has it been for yourself as a business leader having to sort of get to grips with leading from a distance at times? <laughs> I will say, is, um, uh, for example, today I'm back in the factory. But one thing I would admit is we had been thinking about doing more work from home prior to COVID. And part there will say because commuting time uh, distractions, and I would say it's uh, obviously difficult for some people in certain businesses who depend on what I call footfall, but we noticed how clear the roads were in the early days of traveling into work for those who were able to do that, lower pollution levels. So, you know, one side of us says we can see why this work from home could have a benefit if, if used positively for, if you like, communities, but the what we had done is indeed we'd set up our system so that we could access our accounting systems, the you know, the famous Zoom meetings and, you know, interaction like that. We are able to do that and actually found that quite positive because, for example, uh, you know, we could be literally uh, in another part of the UK or somebody else uh, at another place and still be participating in meetings. So good and bad, there's better ways to stay in touch. But one of the big things and where we actually have to also take account of is we were commenting because as a company, we typically travel quite a bit to trade shows around the world and some in Taiwan, for example, some in Germany, some in America. And that has been a very important part of our business development and how we meet people. And we have managed to stay in touch using online systems with a number of people. But it is interesting that we're starting to see that informal interaction at trade shows, for example, is now gone. And those people we would meet in the aisle, you know, in passing and those conversations and informal networking that would happen, that's clearly also stopped. So what we are assessing ourselves is how is what I call the positive side of being able to work from home, how has that improved what we do and how we can do certain jobs. But the other side of it is that uh, we think, especially we think into 2021 and some trade shows will obviously restart. How can that be done safely? And we regain that kind of contact. So I think it is very much a, I would say a two way uh, street in terms of sometimes that face to face interaction is actually more important than we thought. 
but there are definitely a number of jobs that can be done safely from home and actually sometimes more effectively. And just thinking about the uh, the future now, Keith, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, because I'm conscious that we are starting to run short of time. It is very clear that what industry is having to do at the moment is get sucked into a cycle of adaptability as opposed to being able to be fully proactive because we can't look too far ahead into the future given the changing guidelines and changing circumstances that often come at short notice so it has really tested the ability of leaders this pandemic to be adaptable and flexible and we're going to need that certainly over the course of the year the next few months but if we do pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment and can look one year ahead from now what is it that you're really hoping to achieve as a business over at Reynolds and where in an ideal world would you like yourselves to be by this time in a year? Well, again, ironically, this kind of links into what we were seeing prior to COVID, but this is just going to accelerate what we call digital engineering. So, for example, we had been looking at 3D metal printing in small volumes for our specialist customers. Because we could do that locally and more flexibly, that kind of aspect for our business would be important. But I think this need to stay in touch with our customers, and we work in sustainable, recyclable materials anyway, this need for local onshore manufacture and faster delivery, I think, fits quite well into what we would aim for as our business model. So I think what COVID has done is accelerated our need to be looking at that. And actually, we are very much uh, looking right now at a pretty large investment in cash in a machine like that. So in some ways, it's forcing the issue. And what we might have said, oh, in the next two or three years, we'll be doing something like that. It's actually saying is this is probably the time to make some decisions and set ourselves up. Because even if it's a tough year this year, hopefully with what will be happening with COVID and vaccines and very safe ways of working, we will, a year from now, we will have a different environment with whatever happens in something like that. But the business itself needs to be more fundamental in terms of how it will cope with what the customers of the, in the future will want from us. Yes, it's certainly going to be a very, very interesting time, isn't it? And um, it's going to be a time of all change and all transition for many businesses. And I think that just given how uncertain the landscape is, Keith, and just what um, amount of variables there still is in this, I think it would be wonderful to actually catch up in future and welcome you back onto the programme with us just to see how the marketplace is changing and we can sort of catch up on how things at Reynolds are getting on behind the scenes as well by that point. Thank you. Yes, we'd love to do that. I'd certainly love that as well, Keith. It's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme with us today. And I've really, really enjoyed your company on the airwaves. And until we do hopefully get an opportunity to converse again and see just what has changed by that point, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on. And I would like to extend that to everybody associated with Reynolds Technology as well. Thank you. And that also goes for our loyal listeners tuning into the programme today also. Please do continue to look after yourselves, stay well and do be considerate of others because it does make a key difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Keith Narona, Managing Director at Reynolds Technology Limited, onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political 
political career despite being blind from birth. He held numerous senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during the latter's premiership and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. His political exploits saw him elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to catch up with him. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council 
will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the, public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good, as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, 
chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it uh rightly so um now was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister particularly perhaps uh, when you were home secretary well it was but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures right uh i was the home secretary for three months when the attack took place in september 2001 on the world trade center and beyond We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now it, it has been said by certain parties um, and uh, i'd like to garner your Uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it, it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members that has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can 
support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government. Mm-hmm. But also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.